Good evening. Welcome and Happy New Year. I'm Asadur Santurian. I'm the Artistic Administrator of the Aspen Music Festival and School. And uh, while I have nothing but compliment about our snow, um, I must compliment you on your beautiful weather. I've been enjoying it all week. Um, the Philharmonic is embracing Beethoven right from the beginning of the new year. Um, yes, it is Mahler's second in your program books. However, um, the shadow of Beethoven is very much present in this symphony in its structure. And uh, even the choice of key that Mahler uh, utilizes for the symphony. Whereas um, Brahms took over 40 years to address the Beethoven ghost, um, it didn't take Mahler that long to seize Beethoven's ghost by the collar and involve him in this work. Um, and so in my notes and throughout my notes this evening, I'll make reference to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which used human voice uh, in a symphonic format, not as a mass, not as an oratory or a cantata, but in involving it in the symphony. Um, Gustav Mahler was born in Kalisz, near Moravian border. However, right from the very beginning, his precocious abilities were identified by members of his family, and um, he was sent off to some of the top schools in Vienna. And, um, and of course, um, he was surrounded by musicians who would be very active in his life later on when he returned as the director of the Vienna State Opera. He went to school with them. And they discussed and argued Nietzsche, and they discussed and argued Freud, uh, among many other things, including each other's music. Nobody liked the other person's music. So that was very good. Um, so um, Mahler was... Um, fantastic pianist, uh, composer, and he would become what we call the modern conductor. Um, so he basically formalized aspects of conducting that are still utilized today. So all the shenanigans were reduced to showing very clear patterns but with the hands and uh, no more shouting over the orchestra directions, and trying to make indications by use of his hands. Um, and also when he took over the Vienna State Opera, he also formalized other things, the orchestra, modern seating. Uh, I think they're, they're in stereo tonight, uh, the violins, um, violas, cellos are... Um, I think the way Gustavo usually has them now. And um, also the tradition in the opera of uh, famous singers inserting arias from a Rossini opera in a Mozart opera or a Salieri opera in a Rossini opera, those practices stopped. And uh, he was rather a very serious person right from the very beginning. Literature. Um, always informed his compositions, and rather quite early age, um, there had been a compendium of German folk um, stories 
uh, and poems, etc., uh, made in his time, which he uh, was occupied with, the, the boy's magic horn, this Knaben Wunderhorn songs, which he culled from those poems and created songs. Why am I bringing this up? Uh, the first four symphonies of Mahler are very much informed by the setting of some of these songs. He incorporates them in his symphonies in the first four. Um, so in the second symphony, he utilizes two, two songs um, from that period. And um, the first symphony he treats as a prequel to this symphony. So, you know, in the first symphony, we have that minor version of Frere Jacques that the double bass, the timpani, and the bassoon play in the slow movement. Well, he um, feels that this symphony, particularly the first movement, which is called Totenfeier, which literally means funeral rites, is the beginning of the conclusion. Uh, so the hero that is being uh, depicted in the cortege of the slow movement of the first symphony is the hero that is receiving his funeral rites, and then later on, Eureka in the last movement, Resurrection. Thus, Resurrection Symphony, something he did not uh, title his symphony. Uh, I think his eager publisher did that. Um, he did write to his wife about um, some program idea about the symphony that the King of Saxony required him to provide before the work was performed in Dresden. And so this is Mahler's voice writing to his wife about program content. It gives only a superficial indication all that any program can do for a musical work, let alone this one, which is so much all of a piece that it can no more be explained than the world itself. I'm quite sure, I'm sorry about the following hubris, I'm quite sure that if God were asked to draw up a program of the world he created, he could never do it. At best, it would say as little about nature of God and life as my analysis says about C minor symphony. So, there you go. Um, not so bad for a 28-year-old man. So, um, he was always very skeptical about these programs. He did have programs, and they helped him write the work, and then he wanted to eliminate that. He didn't want to revisit that, because they, they helped him in the creative process, but once it was created, he wanted to disown that. So there are many other descriptions um, indicating uh, his viewpoint of this symphony. We can now ignore it. So Totenfeier aspect of the first symphony is, um, it's, it's worth citing here uh, because um, it was written in, 1888, and he finished the work five years later, and the style from the first movement, which is one of the larger movements of the symphony, 
to the style of the last movement, which is the largest of uh, in duration and mass, number of instruments, whatever material is taking place. And in between, we have three very short movements, pretty much treated as an interlude and relief. They are brief in nature. They are also lightly scored. Each one emphasizes an area of the orchestra, but not completely the entire orchestra. But the first and the last movements, that's where we have uh, a lot of mass and weight and depth uh, accumulated. So, um, and the fourth movement is the song Licht" from the Compendium of Songs. That it's, it means original light, and the text is provided in your book. You should follow it along. It is um, heavenly repose. For one moment, we have repose before the eruption of the last movement. Um, so the first movement is firmly anchored in the classical definition of sonata form um, in a very, of course, romantic version of it. So we have the statement of thematic material then the development of those material by virtue of fragmentation and other techniques, and then return to the material in a recapitulation. The other movements are, of course, uh, I'll describe them as we go along. Let me start with, um, so I'm going to play Zubin Mehta's recording with the Vienna Philharmonic, and the soloists are Ileana Kotrubash and Krista Ludwig. So here is the opening, and in typical Mahler symphonies, we always have to have what? A march. So the first movement is a march in C minor. So for nearly a minute, you've been hearing fragmented arpeggios and scales and very much live and not recorded. It's far more exciting and far more unsettling and far more what the hell is going on, nature of things. Um, and um, don't worry, but don't give in to it. Be nervous. Let, let, let the caffeine jitters take over. It's really quite exciting. Um, so this scrubbing of the violins and the violas are really an introduction to what is about to come. And um, there's a beautiful tune that is about to come. This is the first 
material you're going to get. It's kind of a theme. But it's, it's more material. It's more organizing the scrubbings and putting them in kind of a narrative as opposed to fragments. So it's large scale, it's the full forces of the orchestra, and um, it encompasses music both um, lyrical and a great deal of vehemence. Um, there's a lot of music you're going to hear in this 20-minute movement that's pulling and pushing and even tearing at the fabric. Um, we're going to have a return of this kind of um, volatile activity in the last movement, but even on a greater scale. Um, so, if you're thinking Beethoven 9 and you have the cascading fourths in Beethoven 9, um, this goes up. The arpeggios are going up, and then he's serving you these tunes. So, he has Beethoven in mind, but this is not a repeat of Beethoven 9. It is absolutely fresh. He has his own program for it. And um, remember is that it's C minor. It's uh, very much um, not used in the classical period. Beethoven used it. Schubert used it. Um, he uses it. Um, and um, he doesn't care who else did. So um, the the eruption of those fragments are really there to create this ominous, unsettled feeling. And at all times, um, he wants you to feel not grounded. He wants us to feel unsettled in this movement. We are never going to feel, aha. Uh -huh. There's never going to be a moment where the tension, um, he even displaces the meters so that we don't feel grounded in it. Um, it, it it's, it's truly a dramatic setting. It's, it's, it's time shifting, and some things like this have not happened before in music. So it's unbelievably original. It's unbelievably new. And, um, but he knows that he can't push his audience too far. So, in the next movement, he gives us very gentle material. Here we are.
we feel settled because there's a tonal center and it's a dance and things have scaled down somebody opened the windows and we're sanitizing with san sunlight So the Andante is a Lendler, which is an Austrian folk dance, but it's entirely original. It is entirely of Mahler's making and imagination. Um, it's a, the, the melody is a little mournful. It's a little bit uh, kind of youth and lost innocence to it. And it's very brief. And at the premiere, it was asked to be repeated, which is something Mahler did not enjoy most of his life about his music. Um, the third movement is the setting, an expanded orchestration of the song St. Anthony of Padua, um, Sermon to the Fish. has a hypnotic tune. This swirls like this for a few minutes and it comes to a stop and we have the introduction of the human voice singing Urlicht and that is the fourth movement. These movements move very quickly.
That's quite beautiful song. That's one half of the movement, and then she will sing the next verse after this. So the song is, of course, is simplicity itself, and there's a naturalness to the text setting, and um, it's very hymn-like, and it is even further repose um, in the proceedings of the evening. And I should point out that in the opening section, 35 bars, there are 21 meter changes. So what sounds simple to you, the mezzo is counting like <laughs> hell, um, to give this very, so he's being very, very true to the text setting. And um, so this is the second use of the text from this Knaben Wunderhorn. The ending has a different text. It is not something he has said before. And I'll say something about that. Um, so this is very characteristic of Mahler's inventiveness. And sometime you should sit down with this Knaben Wunderhorn songs and go through them. And you will recognize a lot of symphonies in them. Uh, he was inspired by these songs with material, musical matter for his symphonies. Sometimes he quoted them, sometimes um, he incorporated them or inculcated them, like in the Third Symphony and in the Fourth Symphony, there are songs that are um, inculcated in various movements, um, like this one. So this bomb that he has spread with this hymn-like song is shattered by an outburst of very malarian proportion, as you know. He likes to basically blast us out of our seats uh, when um, he's introducing something new. But like Beethoven, Mahler draws upon the earlier movements. So you will hear quotations from the earlier movements in the last movement. I think we all know that in Beethoven 9, we, have, we hear them. We know they're there. But Beethoven um, restates them in order to reject them to get us to the finale. Mahler accepts them and is building upon them to get us to the finale. So that is the difference. In Beethoven, we hear a quotation. In Mahler, we hear the quotation, and then he layers them on top of each other and building mass of sound and volume and momentum to our evening. Um, there is a um, use of the Gregorian Dies Irae also in March-like setting in this movement, and it brings us to the great summons in the movement which I will play for you, which is one of the most breathtaking moments. Um, but first, I'll blast you out of your seats, I think. So that should feel like an inadvertent inhalation of wasabi in your sinuses. 
I don't think you should be calm when this moment comes in the symphony. You should be extremely uncomfortable. Your sacrum and other parts should squirm because that's what it's doing. It's, it's, it's not like, oh, isn't that nicely organized and everybody played at the right time? No, I mean, listen to it. If your neighbor had this music on all night, you'd call the police. forces off stage as well as we have forces on stage. So we're having this otherworldly um, incantation as well as whatever's happening on stage. And at some point, uh, he, you know, this array, this pageant of sound of brasses blasting and strings, going crazy, um, you know, basically it's the cry in the wilderness. And in the midst of all this, in the middle of the movement, we have the great summons, the Grosse Appel, the last trump. Horns, trumpets, loud, but at great distance, while in the foreground, a solitary bird in the form of a flute flutters across the scene of destruction. So. No, oh, hold on. Technical ineptitude.
doesn't this music feel anticipatory? Something is going to happen. What is going to happen? What is going to happen? Something is going to happen. It's a harbinger of the next. And the next thing is beautiful a cappella choral entrance singing the words of the resurrection portion. And from this extremely quiet sea of voices, a single soprano voice will float free above them, very much like this flute that is descanting around what's in the atmosphere. After all of that, the choir makes its entrance without the orchestra. Out of the silence, they blossom. to stand still again, doesn't it? didn't occur to Mahler for quite some time. He was uh, quite distressed. The inner movements he literally wrote in a flash of creative display and scored everything in one day. But he didn't have an ending. And he had played, um, how many of you know the name uh, von Bülow? Von Bülow? Yes, he was the cuckold who lost his wife to Wagner. And um, he gave the premieres of um, Meister Singer and Tristan, as well as supported the music and conducted the music of Brahms. He gave the US premiere as a pianist, uh, Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto. And so he was quite a capable pianist as well. So Mahler had gone to him and played through the first movement of the symphony, to which von Bülow remarked that it made Tristan sound like a Haydn symphony. 
So unfortunately, um, three years after that meeting, von Bülow died and Mahler attended his funeral. At the funeral, um, Klopstock hymn was sung and it like a flash, and he says, it struck me like lightning, this thing, and everything was revealed to my soul, clear and plain. So he borrowed that text about resurrection, refashioned it, adding text himself, and put it at this point in the symphony. And to him, so with this magical soprano line that grows and emerges above all, um, the music will grow more confident as we go towards the finale. At this point, there's not much time lost, and, um, and there's going to be peals of fanfares and bells and all sorts of um, happy noise-making because we're also now in E-flat major. And one is battered to the ground, Mahler said, after leading the premiere, which, of course, von Bülow had planned to conduct, and then raised on angel wings to the highest heights. So the symphony, of course, will end in this triumphant major key, which is what it's supposed to do. Uh, however, the journey from C minor to 80 minutes later, E-flat major, has been a world and a lifetime. So, Beethoven, at the beginning of your new year, in the form and voice of Mahler. There's a wonderful evening ahead of you. Enjoy, and thank you for coming. Thank you.